Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this morning that we can gather together and worship you through studying your word, through music, just that we can fellowship together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that you be with us now as we go into our time of inductive Bible study. I pray that you would open our minds to what you would have to show us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, we have been workshopping the, the letter of 3 John um, by way of recap. Well, maybe. <laughs> by way of recap, we'll, um, we'll just kind of do a quick review of where we have been. So we started out, we compared translations to start. Uh, we identified some, some slight differences in translations, some slight wordings um, to kind of give us an idea of at least maybe where the significance lies or different, maybe different understandings of, of the original. Um, we, we had observed that the concept of truth, you know, with the truth, for the truth, truth in general, um, as well as uh, testify, born witness, were words and phrases that showed up a significant amount during um, when we were comparing. We noticed that there was this, there seemed to be an escalation um, in the description of diatrophies. Um, we ask questions. You know, why did the elder write? Who is, Di you know, is Diotrephes an apostate? How does this relate to other Johannine writings? Um, who are the strangers? And we really, you know, through asking the questions, we really zeroed in on that, you know, again, this, this idea of truth, but also... Um, Make sure, yeah. But also, you know, what was going on with Diotrephes, you know, the conflict, you know, the compare or the contrast between Diotrephes and Demetrius seemed to be where the, the meat of the meaning in that text was coming from. We identified some significant terms. Again, you know, truth in the truth with the truth. Um, receiving, acknowledging, accepting, it related to authority, bring to mind, recall, remember, testimony. These seem to be significant terms. A lot of the meanings seem to be carried within those terms. Um, so the reason we identified these is that when we, get into inter when we moved into interpretation that this would be where we spent a lot of our time and energy. Not that other parts of the text are important because it's all scripture. All scripture is important. We're never going to look at scripture and say, oh, well, that's just extraneous. That's not important. But in a letter, and we identified the format of, a, of third John as a letter, is the meaning of the letter going to be found in the salutation or is it going to be found in the body of the text? Yeah, generally speaking, the meaning of a letter is going to be found in the main body of the text, so that's where we're going to focus. That's not to say that everything else isn't significant. 
Again, it's all scripture. It's all significant. There's meaning in all of it, but the meat of it is going to be in the body of the letter. So that's where we're going to focus. <laughs> we identify different literary features. So when we talked about literary features, we're identifying um, aspects of the text, the structure itself, that, again, repetition, truth, testimony, walk in the truth, this idea of true, truth, testimony showed up a lot of times. In fact, when we got into interpretation, um, I had gone through and I had counted how many times that phrase shows up, and the word truth or variance of the word truth and testimony shows up about, I think it was 11 times in 15 verses. It's important to John. <laughs> He's repeating himself an awful lot. So if this is something, again, if this is something that the author is repeating a lot, this means something. We don't generally repeat ourselves unless this is something that means something. We notice that there was an escalation with Diotrephes. At first he didn't accept, then he spread slander, then he was unwelcoming, and then he was putting people out. We notice that this seemed to be a pattern just kind of from our observation generally throughout history when we talk about like cults of personality, um, divisive leaders. Um, this seems to be a pattern of becoming very conflictual and then we're putting anybody out that disagrees with us. Then we're going to put anybody out who supports people who disagree with us. Um, not accepting of the truth. There was this contrast, Diotrephes and Demetrius. Um, we also notice that with verses 1 through 8 and then 9 and 10, that there was a, or with 1 through 8 and then 11 through 14, there was a very different tone. There was a more positive tone in the letter. But then in 9 and 10, when it's talking about Diotrephes, it became this very somber, very serious tone of writing in the letter. So the, why do we identify the literary features, that change in tone, that change in writing? Well, because there's a reason for the change. And that, that tone signifies to us that, hey, one of these things is not like the other, and we probably want to look at that. Again, there's a lot of meaning to be drawn from this. And then we identified, just broke down the literary units. We identified this as a letter. Well, we know that letters have a general form and structure. You know, there's your general greeting. Hey, it's me, I'm writing. You know, dear so, and I'm writing to. There's the personal note, commendation, condemnation, commendation again. And then there's the conclusion and the, I hope to see you again. General form of a letter. Again, I mean, 2,000 years later, we're not really writing letters any differently than John was writing his letter. We're writing it on different topics, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. But yeah, generally speaking, today, we don't write our letters much differently. Follows the same general structure 
greeting, a personal note, kind of introductory matters, the main crux of what we're getting at, this is why I'm writing, and then kind of the wrapping up and signing off. Not much different. So last week, we moved into considering context, and we looked at a bunch of different contexts. Um, there are some of these contexts that we noticed they're really not present. There was nothing in, John, in 3 John that's really talking about the geopolitical context of what's going on. You know, we see in some of the other writings in the New Testament, especially in Acts um, and in some of the Gospels, there's reference to what's happening in the world around. We don't see that in 3 John. 3 John is pretty focused on there's a situation going on here in this church to where I'm writing, and that's what I'm writing about. Um, there was a liter you know, literary style. We talked about how this, how this is relating to the rest of Scripture, especially how this is relating to the rest, you know, the rest of John's writings. Well, this idea of truth seems to be a theme that shows up in all of John's writings, not just 3 John, but in 2 John, in his Gospel, 1 John. This theme of truth and bearing witness and testimony is a huge theme for John. Why would that be a big, you know, why would this idea of bearing witness, testimony to the truth be something important for John? When, we, when do we think John was writing? John was writing, from best as we know, John was writing at the end of the first century. All of the other disciples were dead. They, they had been martyred. John is the only one left. This is something Henry and I were talking about before we, even, before we started today, that you know, you're, you're getting, well, at the end of the first century, you're starting to get second and third generation Christians, people who, they didn't see Jesus. They didn't know the apostles. Things are coming down second and third hand. Well, there's faith kicking in, but what happens when I'm hearing it from somebody who heard it from somebody else who was told by somebody else? What's that? Things can get changed. Things can get corrupted. Some of the, some of the mythos creeps in about things that happened. So maybe John is setting the record straight. No, I was there. This is the truth. This is my testimony of the truth. Yeah, so maybe there's a bigger situation than just John writing to this particular church. Maybe there's a more global, con a global thing of what's going on in the church in general because, again, it's not just 3 John. You go to 2 John, you go to 1 John, you go to the gospel. Truth, this idea of truth shows up repeatedly, bearing witness, bearing testimony. I mean, end of the first century, if he's following Jesus in around 30 AD and he's writing around 90, so he's writing at least 60 years after, he's old. He, he's old. Um, if memory is serving, 
the, at least according to church tradition, for as reliable or accurate as that may be, he lived to be almost 100 Yeah. Yeah. So he he would have been. He 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 had seen things. <laughs> he, he he had seen a lot, and you know we there were a lot of things happening in first century Judea. I mean there there was Jesus, kind of a big deal. There was the destruction of the temple. There was the, the constant conflict with the Romans. There was a lot going on. So he, he had seen a lot. Phil? Uh, this was written right after Revelation or right before Revelation? Yeah, we, we think that all of John's writings were written right at about the same, within about the same five to ten year window. We think probably while he was on exile in Patmos. Because um, according to church tradition, again, for as accurate, they had tried, the Romans had tried, I don't think it was the Romans, but he, they had tried to execute him. Um, had tried to boil him alive. He didn't die, so they exiled him to basically exiled him into slavery on Patmos. And we know he was on Patmos when he received the revelations. For, um, being, for being in his 90s, he was very sharp. Of yeah. He, of course, he was given. Yeah. By God, of course. Yeah. And we think the impact that, I mean, this is John uneducated he's a fisherman and yet so that's the I'm not thinking that that's the takeaway from scripture here <laughs> this is how cults get started y'all <laughs> um, and we had moved then to the next step of interpretive correlation which is this idea of do similar words and phrases show up elsewhere um, this is using scripture to interpret scripture. Essentially, this is guardrails. You know, when John is using the same words and phrases, generally speaking, you know, when an author uses the same words and phrases, generally speaking, they, we can assume that they're using the same words and phrases in the same way. Because authors have a particular style of writing that tends to come through in all of their writings. Now there's a caution there because sometimes words get used differently and that should be evident from context. But the, these certain phrases that we see showing up in 3 John, walking in truth, well, it shows up elsewhere. It shows up in 2 John. You know, there's walking in truth in 3 John versus his use of the phrase practicing truth that he uses in 1 John. He's probably meaning the same thing. Walking in truth versus I am the truth. Love in the truth. So, you know, we identified this idea of truth and testimony as being something pretty important to John. Does this show up elsewhere in his writings? Well, yeah, we see that there's at least three or four phrases or concepts that show up almost verbatim elsewhere in John's writings. 
this is probably going to give us a really good idea of what John is getting at. These words don't exist in isolation. He uses them elsewhere. Consequently, he's also probably meaning this, something very similar. There's also the correlation of we look at Diotrephes' behavior, a very divisive individual, stirring up conflict, putting pe- you know, pitting people against each other, not accepting the authority of the, disciple, or of the apostles, casting out the apostles. The question, does, you know, if we look at descriptions of false teachers in the rest of the New Testament, does Diotrephes' behavior fit the same type of behavior that's described as fal- that of false teachers? Yeah. Pretty similar. I mean, false teachers throughout the New Testament, it's not just I'm teaching wrong things, although that's definitely a sign of a false teacher to be sure, but their behavior is also described. And again, as we start narrowing in that, you know, the apostles, you know, that Diotrephes is rejecting the authority of the apostles. He's not welcoming them in. John is describing himself in the, you know, throughout his writings as, as bearing witness to the truth. Well, if the apostles are bringing in their testimony of this is the truth, this is what I saw, and Diotrephes is rejecting that, he's putting the apostles out, he's not welcoming them, he's putting anybody out who, who supports them. Does this give us maybe a better understanding of what was Diotrephes doing? Was it just that Diotrephes was a rude individual and a boorish person to get along with? But his doctrine was probably okay. Or is this a person that's probably being described as he's, he's not accepting people who bore witness to the truth? He's, he's putting people out of the church who bore witness to the truth. Does this give us a different understanding of the conflict that was going on in the church that Paul, that, not Paul, that John was writing to? Okay. And yeah, it brings a lot of names to mind. Yeah. So yeah, as, as, as we look at how is Diotrephes described, is, yeah, is this bringing to mind modern correlates? It should. We, after that, we moved into meanings of words and phrases. And this is where, you know, this idea again, you know, as we're narrowing in our focus, you know, when we're looking at just observation, we're casting a very wide net. We're casting the net, latching onto anything that seems to be significant. And as we go through these steps, we're narrowing our focus in. You know, each, each one of these steps should narrow and sharpen our focus. So, again, you know, repeatedly throughout each one of these steps, again, 
truth, testimony shows up. You know, bearing witness. This is where I kind of did a word count of, you know, variations of the idea of truth and the concept, and it shows up. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven times the word truth shows up. Uh, and another five times that testimony shows up. And not, not an insignificant number of times truth and testimony are connected with each other conceptually in, in the argument that he's making. Bearing witness to the truth is probably an important concept. This is where we wrapped up last week. So as we move in, you know, there's, a, there's a thematic correlation. And thematic correlation, as we've talked about before, is very closely related to interpretive correlation. But with thematic correlation, we're, ta we're taking a step back. We're not so much narrowing in on words, phrases. Thematic correlation, we're looking at, do, these, do themes show up? Is what John is talking about with the truth and bearing witness to the truth, or maybe by contrast, falsehood, does that show up elsewhere in Scripture? Is, is, John, the, is John writing here in 3 John, is this the only place in Scripture where truth and bearing witness to truth or false teachers shows up? Is, John, is third John just completely out in left field, standing all alone? Like, no, he's the only one talking about truth or holding to the truth or walking to the, in the truth. Or does this show up elsewhere? It does show up elsewhere. Yeah, it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big concept, especially throughout the New Testament. And I just put a couple of examples up there because if I were to make an exhaustive list of all the times that truth and bearing witness to the truth, walking in truth, practicing truth, holding to truth, testifying to the truth shows up, we could be here all morning. Sorry, Henry, you're not preaching today because we're just going through all the passages that talk about bearing witness to truth. That's like the whole New Testament. <laughs> I mean, that is the entire New Testament is written by, written by men who bore witness to the truth, knowing that they were writing to people who maybe weren't there. They're, you know, hearing it from a friend who heard it from a friend, you know, as the song goes. They're... They're hearing it second and third hand. And like Robin had said, you know, when stuff starts getting past second, third, fourth hand, things get corrupted. Things get changed. Have you ever played Absolutely. Yeah, like a game of telephone. But because we have this bearing witness to the truth we know that the message of the, tr the, the gospel, the truth, hasn't changed. We have the recorded testimony of men who were there. They saw it with their own eyes. 
we have their record. <laughs> this is what I saw. So if we were to talk about the, uh, this, you know, the broad theme of bearing witness to the truth, the whole New Testament, <laughs> just put it up there, the whole New Testament. I feel like I've been talking for a second. What are, what are people's thoughts? I want to get some feedback from... Are there places where, from what we've gone over in Third John, that we see things pop up again? I mean, like I said, this broad, this broad concept of truth, but are there specifics? Crickets. <laughs> Who wants to get, well, we won't read all of 2 John, but suffice it to say, when we go to 2 John, there's a lot of similarities in, the le- in 2 John to 3 John. He's writing to a different person. In fact, we don't know specifically who he's writing to except um, the elect lady and her children. That's all we know. But yet, the themes that show up are very similar. You know, he talks about in 3 John, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Very similarly to what, he, what he's talking about in, 3 John, in verse 3. Indeed, as you are walking in the truth. Who wants to get John 17, 17? Okay, just have an old-fashioned sword drill. Sure, go for it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. So it's, what does it mean to be walking in the truth? Well, we're told in another one of John's writing, your word is, you know, Jesus saying, your word is truth. Well, that's a horse of a different color now, isn't it? We know what truth is. Jesus, earlier on, three chapters earlier, I am the way, the truth. All right. Who, has, who can look up Ephesians 4.14? This is, this is by way of contrast, so this will... Okay. Can you read forward into 15, I guess 16, 15 at least? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And, yeah, so and beginning in that section, he's talking about um, it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know, there are people who've been gifted. There are people who were there. 
They saw it. Why has the church been given these people? Well, we're, we're told as it moves forward, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, so that we can know the truth, so that we're not tossed to and fro, but we're anchored. So why do we need to know the truth? Is it just a, so we know what happened? Well, yeah, this happened. Okay, that's great. Good. I know. Phil? I just wanted to throw something out there. Uh, the world has their version of the truth. This is the Christian view of the truth. Yeah. How does the average person on the street that's never heard this discern what is truth and what is not truth? They can't. Yeah. Drawn by the word. Absolutely. Well, and here we go into, you know, we've, as we talked about, you know, when we start getting in, especially interpretation, there's a very fluid line between interpretation and application. You know, interpretation should drive application. You know, we see a world today that rejects this, rejects the truth, and, what, and consequently, what do we see? What do we see in the world? What, not truth. Not truth. We see confusion. Confusion, mayhem, corruption, you know, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, whatever sounds, oh, hey, that sounds good today. Let's go, oh, well, that, well, that's the new thing. Let's go over here. We see that. Every day, every week, it's something new. This is the new fad, the new thing. There's no anchor. So what is truth? It's our anchor. Just what comes to mind is when you now you always hear people say, "Well, that's your truth." Yeah, and it's just it's mind blowing because the word truth itself <laughs> denotes that there is a truth. Yeah, only one true truth. So how can it be your truth, my truth, their truth, her truth? It's like so obscure to even try to wrap yeah. your head around that. Yeah, we even see confusion reigning to such a degree that we take something like truth and our societies just redefined it we're yeah well, sure we'll use the same word it sounds good well but anymore in our in in society today what does truth mean yeah well whatever i think that's that's right for me so it's my truth you do you yeah you do you i'll do me you keep your truth i'll keep mine yeah We're, we, we have the truth. <laughs> we have a record of the people who witnessed it. The Holy Spirit uses the word to convict yeah. to people of the truth. And it's when the Holy Spirit uses this, there's no other way to hurt them to know truth except through the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And when, you know, when we look throughout Scripture, you know, three major passages we look at with false teachers, you know, Jude, 2 Peter 3, 1 Timothy 6. I mean, there are others where false teachers and characteristics of false teachers are talked about. These are the big three. 
how do we how do we defend the church against false teachers? How do we counter, how do we even know what false teaching is? Know the truth. <laughs> we know the truth. You know, how, how does a church, how does the church that John is writing to in 3 John counter someone like Diotrephes, who's divisive, who's kicking out the apostles, who's stirring people up to conflict, who's rejecting the people who are bearing, who've borne witness to the truth. How do we counter someone like that? How do we counter that in the church? We, we know the truth. We walk in the truth. How, how do false teachers gain their foothold in a church? We don't, yeah. When people don't know the truth, they can be swayed, as Paul writes in Ephesians, carried to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Because if I don't know the truth, how can I counter falsehood? Absolutely. Yeah, if we don't know the truth, we'll be carried about by anything that tickles our ears. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. There's this really forceful personality. Oh, they look good. And they sound good. And they sound good. They're tickling the ears. They're saying the nice things. Yeah. So let's go follow them. If we don't know the truth, that's what happens. And we see that. And that, again, is, as we're going through 3 John, what is John getting at? I think we've just hit on it. <laughs> is that... You, okay, I, just, I thought you were... <laughs> Okay, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So, as, yeah, as we get to what, what is John, what's the meaning of the text? Well, by this point, you know, we, like I said, we've drawn the correlations. We've looked at the words. We've looked elsewhere where these themes, where these words, where these phrases have shown up. How are they used? We've, we've compared you know, the theme of false teachers, you know, Diotrephes' behavior as it's described in 3 John. We've looked at how are false teachers described elsewhere. I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> sounds kind of reminiscent of what Diotrephes is doing. So what, at this point, would you say that we have a fairly good idea of what, what's the meaning, what's, What's John trying to communicate? What's the meaning? What's the author's intention? What's the meaning that he's communicating to the recipients? Okay. Seek truth. Continue in the truth. 
communicate the truth. Live the truth. Yeah. Walk in the truth. Stay in the truth. What's that? Abide in the truth. We... Yeah, there's, there's only one truth. Yeah, there's a definite article there. The truth, not a truth, some truth, maybe the truth. Your truth, my truth. The truth that we know elsewhere. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Your word is truth. If at this point in our interpretation things are still unclear, and even still it's good to, you know, good to consult, you know, is our interpretation of this text seem to be largely in line, or is there an ambiguity that maybe we need some help on? Yeah. And in some texts, we're going to come across that, where by time we get to this point in our study, that it's pretty straightforward. But this is something that we may do throughout the whole thing. Um, how many people in here have a commanding knowledge of biblical Greek? I totally do not. <laughs> so probably at some point along the way, if, you know, if we want to know, okay, well, this word is interpreted as truth. What's that word? Is, you know, what's this concept? Guess what? We maybe have made reference to a Greek lexicon to help us understand along the way. Um, so really along the way, we've probably consulted. You know, if we looked at study notes, you know, in our study Bibles, if we looked at notes along the way, guess what? We consulted. Um, you know, consultation doesn't necessarily mean we're sitting down with these you know, massive, unwieldy tomes. Sometimes it means we're going to just look at a study note. Being that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture, I don't think we need a whole stack of books to figure out what the Bible says because this interprets itself. If we indulge ourselves and absorb Scriptures, yeah. we're going to learn more about what it says. Absolutely. And when that, that's one of, our, one of the hermeneutical principles that we adhere to is harmony. That what's said in one place of Scripture is going to be in harmony with another place, that Scripture interprets Scripture. You know, we're well, I just, it, it, it's true that we can study the Scripture for ourselves and gain, and gain a knowledge of it. The value of, of, of the consultation step is helping us see how we miss something, because we, we can miss things. And something else, I, I don't mean this as a criticism, but maybe we've missed something as It's in contrast to that. We kind of miss that in the conversation, and that's where, okay, maybe if we did a little bit of consulting, we'll see that this that that's a pretty big part of the letter too. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
So there is huge value in consultation. Because, like Ken said, we may miss things. Sometimes as we start going through this, we can get tunnel vision. I, I, I'll speak for myself. I know I can get tunnel vision. Um, we miss things. And sometimes we miss something that seems to be in our mind, okay, this is kind of a small thing, and yet it turns out to be the linchpin to understanding the whole thing. Do you have any thoughts, Henry? Okay. <laughs> yeah, your thoughts, good sir. So he, he knows, our, when I ask, is there anyone in here who has a commanding knowledge of biblical Greek? Henry does. Henry. <laughs> the people in the room. Okay. <laughs> it depends on which audience I'm in. But let me just say that for all of the things that knowing Greek does for me, mm -hmm. Yes. You do get from your English Bible, and you never have to question them. Um, it's only that it expands our understanding and amplifies yes. it and gives a deeper run. And that part is there for us to benefit from those things. Um, and therefore, I mean, I might refer to something like in a sermon, I'll refer to a Greek. But if you can't make a correlation or an understanding of that, or if it's not significant to your spiritual life, I don't even bring it up. Yeah. I might know the stuff, but until it's relevant, then it gets lost in that. And I, that's what I like about what Phil said. And then, exactly what Ken is saying, there's that tension of the collection of, of experts who, in many cases, for the, the cumulative of centuries of knowledge that contributes to that research and everything so that we can have that base of understanding. So what are those? Those are men. Yep. And we're men. And we all come before this yes. as men, no matter how many letters are after our name or not. And, you know, you can, you can read my paper on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to say that the thing that came to my mind as soon as he started bringing that up was Ecclesiastes 12.12. 12. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yes. It's on. I think it's picking up through the, through the computer, but I don't Ecclesiastes know. Ecclesiastes 12.12. 12. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. I I th yeah, I, and I appreciate that like, you know, there is value in consulting, but like Phil had said, Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Who is the best one to tell us what God's Word means? God. God himself, and we have his revealed word. There's a reason why when we're going through this, when we talk about the five, you know, the five steps in interpretation of inductive Bible study, that consultation is last, it's not first. You know, the first things that we're doing, we're looking elsewhere in Scripture. Where does this show up in Scripture? Where do these words show up in Scripture? What are the words on the page? What do these words mean? 
that's Scripture interpreting Scripture. And Scripture will always be the best interpreter of Scripture because it's God interpreting His Word for us. Uh, with, I have nothing against using commentaries and stuff like that. But we come to the point where do we vet these authors of these books? And sure. we get entangled in, is this person legitimate? And we go and, and vet that person and we lose our whole train of thought and the purpose of trying to figure this stuff out yeah. when it's so simple here and to find it here in Scripture. Agreed. Yeah, not, we can always trust Scripture. We can't always trust certain, yeah. Some commentaries are great. Some are really questionable. And you're going to have people, in my case, I've had an individual in my life who, when they question, like, well, how do you know the Bible is true and what convinced you and yada, 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 and my answer was, well, the Word of God, it came back to me, well, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. And I'm like... What other proof do you want? Like, the Bible is the proof of the Bible. I can't. <laughs> so there are going to be people that reject the fact that sure. God's word is in, given to us by God, and, and that's the interpretation, and that's why it's truth. Yeah. What, what I take great confidence in, you know, we're, we're commanded to spread the gospel, share the gospel. We're commanded to speak the truth. We're never commanded to convince somebody of the truth. You know, we're, we're, we're told that that's what, the, that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit convicts. The Spirit convinces. I can't do that. And that's, that's where, again, you know, I, I take great comfort in that, that. Because if it were left to me, oh, well, I have to convince you of the truth. We're in a sorry state of affairs. <laughs> um, but uh, let's, let's close in a word of prayer. We are running a few minutes late, but it was very good discussion, so I'll always run a few minutes late for good discussion. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in the Word once again where we can dive more into Third John and what, what you would have us to know and to understand from your written and revealed word. And we, we thank you, Father, that your word has been preserved for us, that we can have great confidence that this is your word, that, and your word is truth, and we thank you for that. I pray, Father, that you would be with us as we move now into our, our time of worship through song and worship through the Lord's table and through the word. Thank you and praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.